News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Indeed, the rational perspective, and that's what business is all about. And here with me in studio is our managing editor, Stuart Lohman. Stuart, what are people reading on business today? Sorry, um, <laughs> that's what's called user error. Mm. Okay, uh, you can go. I'll cut that out too. Perfect. Um, top story is Ivermectin, Alec. It's been a theme for the last few, probably a couple of months, actually. Uh, Dr. Rapiti, uh, just again looking at where it does work and potentially, or well, from his side, where it does work. Um, and obviously, we get some nice feedback on that. Um, it's not a silver bullet, as Colleen says, but it does add value to the the, the COVID sort of pandemic. Um, in second, I ran more fund manager Sean Pesh. He wrote a piece on he compared money management with to get vaccinated. And he does a whole bunch of quotes on Charlie Munger and stuff. And the one he brings into the vaccination is uh, never risk what you can't afford to lose. So your life. Mm. Exactly. Okay. And there's a line, you know, so then that's his why. So you should just get it done. I love that story of Sean's. He's such a rational fellow and he's taken a, a as you say, a, a very good long hard look at whether or not you should get vaccinated a little bit like i remember once hearing uh was it warren buffett saying that should you believe in god or not uh it's actually it's probably the, a good idea to believe in god because if you go upstairs after you die and there is a god and uh he says did you believe well and you didn't believe in him well, then you've got a lot to lose. But if you didn't believe in him and there isn't one anyway, well, what have you lost? So <laughs> a little bit like uh, what Sean said there. Now, you also picked up on um, when the facts change, you change your mind. And granted, 500 days ago when this whole thing came about in South Africa, might not have had the same facts or art vaccines and COVID itself. But as they've changed, you probably should be led to see that there is value in having it. So it was just – it's an – a rational view, which is what we like. And the, the community's been le- reading it. And number three? Uh, number three is actually a story from June, Alec, and it's the one from Girard- Pandas, Girardot, and it's on immunity versus vaccination. And it's just fascinating how this piece is still running two months later. So. Extraordinary. Uh, Nadia, what are people watching on Biz News TV? So the top video of today is the follow-up by Nimoler to the open letter to President Ramaphosa. So it gives a little bit of background, but it's equally as powerful. And then another great video also on the topic of ivermectin is a summary of your interview with Professor Colleen Aldous in which she talks about ivermectin and how it's been overlooked. And the third video that's also been doing very well in the last 48 hours is of your interview with Hein Marx of the United Liberty Alliance in which Marx explains that Cape succession is closer than we think. Well, we're going to be covering most of those stories again today. Not the Niemöller one, of course, but Cape Secession is quite a theme in tonight's program on the Business Power Hour. We have got an interview that our colleague in London, Linda van Tilburg, did with Rolf Mayer. Rolf, you might remember, was one of the people who negotiated. He was coming from the National Party side with the current president, Cyril Maposa. 27, 28 years ago, he was uh, helping to negotiate what we have in the Constitution today. That interview is very informative. It goes against uh, the view in the Western Cape that is increasingly being held by people that secession is a good idea. Uh, so, And then we'll also hear from Peter Hayne and find out if he's got some views on all of this. And remember this being Tuesday, Stephen Nathan, who lives in the Western Cape, no doubt will have some insights as well. And then on the Ivermectin story, uh, we're going to have some highlights from a conversation you had today, Nadia, uh, with Dr. Colleen Aldis and, and a couple of doctors. Yes, it was fascinating. All of them uh, in favor of ivermectin, but as used as a whole with the con- in conjunction with other treatments. So it was very interesting. We'll hear more on, on those highlights later. Stu, what are our community listening to? What's been going on in the Business News podcast? On, on the radio side, Alec, the Rolf May interview you mentioned is running quite nicely. It's top of the pile. Um, on the Cape Secession. Uh, Colleen's interview from last week on Ivermectin is uh, in second place. And then it's interesting, we've pushed the Afrikaans interviews, you know, Shaul does one, one a week. And in third place is the Potroy with Etienne Rue on Pepco. 
Uh, we'll bring this to you every day in future. So we've given you a, another new innovation here, uh, trying to just give you a broader sense of what's going on in the biz news environment. But as for tonight, fascinating show coming up. First, though, uh, we're going to be picking up with the news headlines. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. And as promised, we kick off first with the news headlines. Power Utility ESCOM has confirmed that an explosion at Unit 4 of Medupi Power Station on Sunday night caused extensive damage to the generator. The incident occurred during the activity to displace hydrogen with carbon dioxide and air respectively for the purposes of finding an external leak, said ESCOM spokesperson Sigunati Monchancha. Following the power station preliminary investigation, it appears that while performing this activity, air was introduced into the generator at a point where hydrogen was still present in the generator at sufficient quantities to create an explosive mixture, which ignited and resulted in the explosion. It also appears that there was a deviation from the procedure for carrying out this activity. ESCOM will place those employees who were responsible to manage and execute this work under precautionary suspension pending the conclusion of an investigation into the explosion. There has been yet another delay for Jacob Zuma's appearance in court for corruption charges, with the former president's legal team requesting a postponement due to Zuma's ill health. Zuma was admitted to hospital in the last week following his arrest and imprisonment for being in contempt of the Constitutional Court. Security officials were warned this week to be on high alert for the court proceedings. Zuma supporters were threatening to gather in numbers, however the gatherings have been called off with the news that Zuma will no longer appear. Zbu Shabalala, the founder and CEO of technology group Adapt IT, has resigned. Adapt IT said the board had accepted the resignation, which took effect on August 6. Shabalala began three months of special leave in May, which followed media reports of allegations that he had hired thugs to beat up his estranged wife's partner. The Sunday Times reported that the partner of Neo Shabalala, Sipo Nzuza, had been in a critical condition in a Durban hospital and that Neo had sought an interdict against her estranged husband. Shabalala had said that the accusations were without merit. Adapt IT said it will make an announcement in due course on a permanent replacement, and in the meantime, Tiffany Dunstan will continue in her role as interim CEO. And in the markets news today, well, NASPAS shareholders will be delighted. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, uh, the share price of NASPAS and its associate process surged today, going up by more than 10%. Now, you might recall that they came under pressure when the company that determines the value of these two shares, that's Tencent, was attacked by the Chinese authorities for uh, producing opium of the mind, it was alleged, uh, through their games. Well, Naspas has got a massive share buyback program. It'll be interesting to see in time to come whether that 10% surge today was based on an acceleration of the share buyback program. Lots of volumes are going through in the NASPAS shares today. 3.6 billion rands worth of stock that was traded in NASPAS, 1.7 billion rands in process. So lots of demand, lots of people believing maybe that the China issue is now over. Elsewhere in the markets, Quilter, which is a, an offshoot from Old Mutual, had a good day. That was up 3%. Sappy, 3% as well. Discam, 3%. And then Capitec is now 174 rand a share. That was up just under 2%. On the way down, bad day for resources stocks. Angler Gold, Ashanti, nearly 8% lower, as was DRD Gold. Harmony, down 6%. Kumba, Iron Ore, 5% lower. South 32 was 4.5% weaker. Sassel lost 3.5% as well. So, very clear that the winners today, big winners today, uh, were the tech stocks uh, that, that are so dominant on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, NASPAS and Process, and on the other end, the resources shares are coming under quite a lot of pressure. As far as the different indices are concerned, the overall index, when you put it all together, was up about one and a third percent. You did, though, have the resources index down about half a percent. And uh, on the other end, the best of the indices today was the JSC Technology Index, which basically is NASPERS process, which was up by 10.5%.
This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Tuesday, that means Stephen Nathan. There seems to be a crowd approach in your part of the world, in the Cape. We are seeing increasingly these calls now for secession by the Western Cape. Linda van Tilburg had an excellent interview with Rolf Mayer, uh, which we're going to hear a little bit later in the program this evening, talking uh, from his perspective. He says, no, it's a lot of rubbish and, you know, it's, it's crazy talk. But uh, it might be in, from where he's sitting in Pretoria, but for people in the Western Cape, it's becoming something uh, more than just a fringe element. Uh, yes, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the provinces in South Africa and if you look at their sort of economic performance, uh, the performance at the, at the local government level, service delivery, uh, you know, Western Cape stands out uh, head and shoulders. Uh, and as a city, as the metropolitan, uh, you know, Cape Town stands out head and shoulders. It's by no means perfect. But certainly on a relative basis, it's an enormous standout. And that's so why celebrating seen... again today, Stephen, uh, the Cape Town <laughs> International Airport, the number one in Africa for the sixth successive year. So it is just one of those, again, one of the pats on the back. And, of course, the Western Cape will keep telling us how clever they are in certain respects. But what Rolf says yes. uh, in that interview uh, is that it can't, the Western Cape cannot survive on its own economically. Uh, what would you think about that? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. You know, um, uh, I don't, um, I don't necessarily agree with that, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, if you look at a country like uh, Namibia, uh, Namibia only has a population of two and a half million people. Uh, Western Cape has got over seven million. So, from a kind of critical mass uh, perspective, you know, Western Cape would be about three times bigger than. Um, uh, uh, Namibia. And what's also interesting about Namibia is if you look at their, their GDP per capita, so GDP per capita, Alec, as you know, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a measure, it's a proxy for kind of uh, the wealth of a country and the wealth of the average citizen because it looks at the output per average citizen. Now, South Africa, our GDP per capita is just over $5,000 per year. Um, Namibia is over 9000 So, you know, here you've got a country that's much smaller and on a per capita basis is 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 uh, much wealthier. Uh, and, uh, you know, by all accounts, a lot of the information, and I think the news that a lot, a lot of us read through Namibia, is it's, a, you know, once again, relatively well-run country uh, in many in many regards. So I don't think that that size aspect is, you know, in, in and of itself, I don't think that is a valid argument. There are a lot of countries around the world for various reasons that are small and that are very successful. Singapore, uh, Switzerland, Liechtenstein. Now, I, I'm not saying one can exactly say it's a one for one but i don't i don't buy that argument i think there will be a lot of challenges uh you know there's challenges from a, a constitutional perspective and from a legal in, <laughs> a perspective and then there's challenges with 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 um i heard Ruth may talk about the interconnectedness you know how do we you know how do we get goods uh between you know if if let's assume that uh Cape Town or Western Cape was to break away. You know, what taxes and what excise duties, and we can see that happening in Brexit. You know, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to make rules around, uh, you know, people movement, movement of goods, movement of people, taxes, uh, corporate profits. So there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. I think that would be a big challenge. But I think this argument about uh, size, that, that, that I certainly don't buy. Mm. Okay. Uh, Size-wise, China is the biggest population in the world. Uh, I think one in five people on earth are Chinese. So if something happens in China to the economy, it affects the rest of us. The Delta variant, which has uh, seems to have swept through South Africa and is now on its way down, has just hit or just started in China, something they are getting terribly concerned about, locking down uh, whole cities as a consequence of it and not importing as much oil. And the oil price fell 4% yesterday as a result of that news. Is this something that uh, we, again, uh, might have forgotten about, that China hasn't had that many COVID cases, even though it, it came from that country? And if you get a seeping out of a highly contagious variant like um, Delta, that it could actually have an impact on the global economy that we haven't worked into the numbers yet? Uh 
Yeah, well, it's always interesting to know what we have worked into the numbers and what we haven't. <laughs> but, um, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think the overarching issue here is that, you know, COVID uh, is a really unpredictable uh, disease that we, you know, we haven't got on top of. And, and, you know, no one is immune and no one is safe. And as you say, you know, China seemed to, you know, certainly they got out of it, uh, they went into it the, uh, the fastest, uh, they locked down the quickest, and they got out of it uh, the fastest. So, you know, they've done an exceptional job, but it doesn't mean that they are out of the woods and, you know, you know they can declare victory uh, against uh, COVID. And I don't think any, any country can. You know, what I would say is that if you were looking at a country that could that could manage, uh, you know, any subsequent waves and manage uh, s- spreading of it. Uh, I think that you know China would be right at the top in terms of their ability to get on top of this and to and to control it. Because just just look at their track record. Um, you know, they are. I think of all the large economies, I think they're the only uh, large economy where their their economic output, their GDP, is basically higher than it, what it was pre uh, pre pandemic. Um, so you know, it just talks about their the ability to 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 react to these things, and often there are you know it's quite a strong hand of government, and and you know human rights is not always for, first and foremost. But I think that you know the ability to contain it, uh, you know, uh, is 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 you know right at the top uh, of 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 any country in the world. And the markets, as you know, Eric, you know the markets of you know they kind of look uh, to profit from any short term movements and to kind of you know. If you're going to panic, panic first. If you're going to trade, trade first. Uh, and what we've seen with the oil price, as you say, you know, it's come off a bit. It's only off about eight percent from its high. So that's you know that's not an enormous uh, decline. And we must also remember that it's up thirty percent this year. The oil price was Brent crude was at about fifty four dollars at the beginning of the year. It's now at seventy. I think it peaked at about was it about seventy seven, seventy eight. Um, so you know we've got to see where it's come from. And in April of last year, it was it was below twenty dollars. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's definitely not an all fall down scenario. And even if you look at the economic forecasts, uh, the economic forecasts for China for GDP this year have been uh, about eight and a half to nine percent. And now what we're seeing is some of the economists are saying, well, because we see infections rising, that might have an impact on output. And they're kind of reducing those forecasts from, let's say, the 8.8 to the 8.3. So it's about half a percent of GDP. But when your GDP is almost nine percent, you know, that's not as bad as, let's say, South mm-hmm. Africa, where you've only got about one or two percent to play with. So mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's too early to get overly concerned about it. But it's obviously something that markets are watching. Uh, just on a more specific thing locally, uh, as we close off with the last two little points, uh, Spoo Shabalala, Adapt IT, uh, a fairly regular visitor to our studio, seemed terribly gentlemanly in the engagement we had with him. Not so much what we saw in court papers and the coverage in the uh, popular press. And today he stepped down from the company that he's helped to build. It's, it just shows, I suppose, that a reputation can take a lifetime to create and can be gone in an instant. Yeah, it's very sad, as you say, because I also, you know, have met Spoo a few years ago and I was impressed, uh, you know, with, uh, with the company he built. I think he was a founder of Adapt IT and, you know, it's grown that from a small business into, uh, you know, a, a, a sizable bus African standards and successful business. And it's really sad to see someone like that uh, who has made a, such a great contribution on the business side uh, to fall along the way. And I don't think we know exactly what has uh, what has transpired, but I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, the behavior that was, as you say, that was uh, sort of uh, mentioned in court papers and in the popular press uh, took a lot of people by surprise, even those people that had worked closely with him. So I don't think we know the full story yet. Maybe it'll come out at some at some stage, but it's disappointing. And on the other hand, maybe it's commendable for the business community that they actually have dealt with this quite quickly. And from a business perspective, you know, haven't let it linger uh, or taint their, you know, taint their business. So maybe that is, you know, a, a positive that we can take out of it is that there was accountability and this was dealt with in a reasonably uh, quick period. And, you know, the business can go on and the business must go on because in cases like this, the business is more important than, you know, uh, the personality, uh, especially when there is reputational uh, issues that might impact the business and impact all their employees and their customers as well. And finally, Madupi, the explosion. It just seems like the, the chaos that was created by the ANC's uh, Chancellor House appointing Hitachi. They got into big trouble uh, through bribery in the United States. They had to pay a big fine for that. 
and clearly they didn't do a good job at Madupi. It's I think it's seven times over the budget and however many years late and now an explosion, which I haven't heard of an explosion before. I'm sure there must have been in power stations or coal-fired power stations. You do hear about the uh, the very rare one and very well publicized ones for nuclear power stations. Uh, of course, uh, Chernobyl and uh, Three Mile Island and I think a uh, recent one in Japan. But coal-fired power stations blowing up, my goodness. Yeah, you know, it's kind of um, when is the pain going to end? And, you know, for me, for me, uh, a couple of points. I mean, the one is it just shows you, um, you know, uh, uh, why state-owned state-owned entities and government, for that matter, should play a much smaller role in the economy because their ability to deliver is just not at the level of a private sector. Uh, you know, and when you have these enormous projects, you know, these are projects they're not they're not immaterial projects. They're projects that, you know that have a material impact both from a financial perspective, as you say, the sheer cost overruns are outrageous. So so that puts enormous pressure on the government, on national treasury, on our tax receipts, on our expenditure. Uh, and then also it's a key, uh, it's a key uh, function and service in the economy is electricity. You, know, you can't have a strong economy and a cost-effective and competitive economy if you can't keep uh, you know, uh, electricity output uh, and you can't do that cost-effectively on, on a competitive stage. So you know, it's really, really uh, sad to see this not unexpected but sad and i guess the issue for the country would be well you know at what stage uh does you know uh, do we get uh, these power stations right or how do we address it you know is it an issue uh, you know one of the classic um kind of concepts in uh, economics and in psychology is this thing of a sunk cost you know we spend some money and then we get attached to the money we spent and we keep on investing more. Uh, and you've got to be careful that it doesn't become a bottomless uh, pit. Now, now I don't know where we are with Madupi. I think it's probably, you know, it might be beyond that. But it really, you know, uh, I think Eskom has got to, uh, uh, you know, show uh, the country a way forward that, that shows us that we are investing, uh, the, you know, these investments are still justified, you know, and what is the long-term path uh, to to get us sustainable and to get us low cost and competitive, and then obviously we're talking about you know how do we even then get to the renewable uh, energy part. So there's a lot for uh, Eskom, I think, to to answer for this one. But it is, as you say, you know how many own goals can we score on 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 this project? Well, it's such a pleasure to be talking with Lord Peter Hayne again. Cheapers, Peter, we've, we saw a lot of, of each other when I was in London. You uh, took me around the House of Lords, and now you've written a book about your background, about where you started. It's not the first book that you've written. Uh, I think in the last year, I've had at least one other that's come from your pen. Have you decided to give up on the, on the Guptas and, and start writing for a living? No, I haven't given up on the Guptas. In fact, uh, my pressure has resulted in, in them appearing on a UK sanctions list like the, uh, like the US has done to them. Now, I, I found myself writing more. I wrote the political thriller set in South Africa last year, which you mentioned, uh, the rhino conspiracy involving poaching and also Gupta-like corruption at the top of South African government. Uh, and then I co-authored Pitch Battles with um, the story of the sports apartheid struggle with my good friend Andre Udendal. So somehow these have all happened at, at, at the same time. So I've been pretty busy with the uh, the word processor. Yes, I have. Autobiographies are interesting because you wonder what the right time of your life is to write it. Obviously, as a 20-year-old, it wouldn't have been the right time. And when you get to 90, I guess it's a little too late to be able to tapping away those keys. What gave you the idea to do it now, to do uh, your, your autobiography at this point? Well, I discussed it with uh, the publishers, Jonathan Ball, both Jeremy Brain, the managing editor, and the, uh, and the CEO, uh, Eugene Ashton, and they were keen on it because back in the late 60s, early 70s, I was called public enemy number one in the apartheid supporting South African media. And because of my activities of militantly disrupting Springbok and all other all-white South African sports tours. And then there was a kind of period of decades where 
my name wasn't particularly known in South Africa except for well-informed politicos and those of a certain age of my kind of generation. And then, of course, suddenly finding myself um, in the spotlight again over exposing the Gupta, uh, Gupta international dimension of the money laundering and corruption involving the global corporates under parliamentary privilege in the House of Lords, which is when we met um, in the Lords. Uh, they felt, and I felt, it was the right time to tell the whole story, that this wasn't just some British lord uh, pontificating away about corruption and money laundering, but that I had a backstory of anti-apartheid activism beginning in, with my parents in Pretoria when I was a boy. And so it's called a Pretoria boy with a picture of me in my Pretoria boy's high uniform, looking very smart, aged about 14, on the front cover. It's an extraordinary story, but it's also, I suppose, the story of of many countries where you have the heroes who fight against a unjust system. Uh, then the system changes. Then there's chaos after the change until it finally settles down into a more benign, uh, normal kind of existence. I guess South Africa's chaos has just continued for a lot longer than anyone would have imagined. To be fair, you know, South Africa had a remarkably smooth transition from a violent uh, apartheid state that ruled by terror and enforced uh, tyranny on the majority of the country to where it is now. I mean, you know, I always think white South Africans should feel lucky that they had in Mandela and Tambo and the rest of the ANC leadership a, a movement committed to democracy and, you know, to, that, that ushered in the finest constitution in the world, without which former President Zuma wouldn't be in prison. Um, there are many countries in the world where uh, uh, courts order former presidents into prison, are there? Um, so, yeah, we're going through, uh, South Africa is going through a bad time and has been for at least the last 10 years. But compared with a lot of other countries, it hasn't done too badly. And that doesn't mean to say anybody should be content with the status quo, which is not a status quo that is capable of bringing a decent life to, to, to all South Africans. Um, in fact, the very opposite. But... Uh, you know, the other thing I say, and, I, and I've done it when I'm teaching, when I was teaching business students at, um, which I enjoyed enormously at Wits Business School, and now the last couple of years at at, at, um, uh, at Gibbs uh, University of Pretoria's Business School in in Joburg, is that you know it's no good just moaning. You can all do something. Everybody can make a difference in their own lives. I mean, you make a difference through business news to what you. Um, you try to kind of investigate and, and report, and lots of people can make a difference. And cumulatively, that will build again a, a better South Africa. Indeed. I, I think there are many white South Africans who would violently disagree with you that they're lucky. Uh, they, feel, they feel hard done by. They feel that, uh, that they would rather have their own state. And we're seeing that increasingly now in the Cape where there's – not a majority of white South Africans, but certainly a, a majority of minorities, if you like, who are now looking for independence. Where do you sit on that discussion? Because something that was was very French, uh, certainly it wasn't even thought about during the period of Mandela uh, and even with Mbeki, has now become increasingly mainstream with around half of the people who live in the Cape of all races saying they don't want to be part of this chaos that's happening to the north. Given again what's happened, what we've gone through, you also come uh, originally from the north of the country, that it is a justifiable approach that's being taken. And, and one maybe, you see it in your, in your adopted country, where there also are people who are wanting to break up the union, one that is, is, uh, is, could happen or maybe even is inevitable. Well, the world's political systems of governance are under enormous threat at the present time. And you see this with separatist movements, and that's just one symptom. The world over, Catalonia in Spain, for example, the Basque country previously in Spain, there was a war of terror there to try and get secession. 
uh, Scottish nationalists uh, who are gaining more and more momentum and Boris Johnson and Brexit are doing them a big favor and giving them a big boost. I'm not a separatist. I'm, I'm not either as some kind of, um, you know, romantic patriot uh, and a believer in a sort of jingoistic um, national identity. But I would not support uh, secession by the Western Cape any more than I'd support secession by Scotland. Because ultimately, if you're smaller, you're, you're, you're weaker. You're stronger together in a bigger entity. That's true for Scotland. I mean, Scotland will be a tiny country of 5 million as opposed to one of over 65 million and one of the biggest economies and strongest uh, and most influential countries in the world, which is um, the United Kingdom. Uh, and the Western Cape on its own may feel, both the, the colored community and the white community especially, and some of the, um, the, the black community as well and the Indian community may feel they don't want to have anything to do with um, the rest of the country because it's too chaotic. Uh, but actually, the Western Cape would be weaker because it would be smaller. Even if a difficult path to secession were ever to succeed. And I doubt that it would, and I doubt that it would be smooth. I think it would cause a lot of conflict and confrontation. And uh, that's the last thing, frankly, that um, South Africa needs or that anybody living in the Western Cape needs. And I, I love the Western Cape. I go there a lot. Um, uh, and I'd like to go there more if not for COVID. So my counsel would be to those who are frustrated and many who moved to the Western Cape from cities like Joburg and elsewhere, I know personally, for, for a better quality of life and a safer uh, form of, of life. I think that they need to work to, to, to make the country better. And that, that may be tough. Yes, it is tough. A lot of things are tough at the moment right across the world, not just because of COVID. I mean, look at what a, the United States has been through. I, I, I have friends in the United States under Trump who just wanted to leave the country, wanted, you know, the bits that weren't Trump to get out of the rest, you know, secede from the rest of it. But we're living, if I just end with this point, um, Alec, we're living in a world of more than a billion Chinese, more than a billion Indians, uh, of a very aggressive uh, Putin-led Russia is a big country uh, with, um, with, with, you know, big so-called strong men of the world, the Zs, the formerly Trump, the, um, uh, the Putins, and dangerous leaders like, like Erdogan in Turkey and the new Iranian regime and the Saudi Arab Arabian regime. This is not a time for people to kind of break off into smaller units and think that they can bob around on the sea of the world and be somehow stronger. Y you won't, you can't escape um, uh, your reality uh, and you're better to try and change it, however difficult you may feel. And I can well understand South Africans at the present time when you hear some of the, the slogans mouthed by agitators, including in KwaZulu-Natal in, inside the ANC, and I'm not just talking about the EFF, attacking minorities in South Africa, not just whites, but also Indians and colors. I can see why Western Capers, particularly from those three groups of, of, of citizens, could be feel, well, we, we, want to, we want to do our own thing. This is Linda von Tolberg for Biz News. Voices from some quarters, including the United Liberty Alliance and the Great Cape Town Civic Alliance, that the Western Cape should become an independent territory, have grown louder. They claim they can get the necessary votes in a referendum in the province. Rolf Meyer, who was the chief negotiator for the ruling National Party when the country's first democratic constitution was written, has firmly rejected the idea that succession has substantial support or could succeed. He took a deep dive into the articles of the constitution and debates that covered issues of self-determination and federalism and whether the Western Cape economy can sustain itself. With me, I covered the negotiations in the 1990s at the World Trade Center that led to the country's first democratic elections in 1994. Let me give you 
what I think is the reason behind it and why there is this discussion going on within some communities in the Western Cape. And I say some because it's limited, it's very limited, but I have been exposed to some of the discussions myself. So so what I think what is going on is that on the one side, it comes from people that that have been in the Western Cape forever. In other words, have never really been exposed to the rest of the country. Have never traveled beyond the borders of the province. And then there's another group amongst which you would find this discussion, and that is people who, in inverted commas, fled from the rest of the country to the Western Cape because they perceive it to be a better place to live. And on top of that, I think what they experience is that they can isolate themselves in the Western Cape. They can withdraw from the rest of the country. And out of that, this whole idea of the isolation that should lead to secession, I think, came about. So that is, I think, the background for it, from my sense, from what I sense and observe. But it's not an idea that can fly. I mean, that that is just not practical. It's not something that can ever get traction in terms of a workable solution. And let me go back uh, to the time of the negotiations when we were drafting the constitution, the new constitution for South Africa. Already at that stage, there were elements within the Western Cape, but also at that stage in Brazil and Natal, who argued for a high level of autonomy for the at the provincial level, with a view or an aim of separating somewhere in the future. And the point that was all the time argued against that was, of course, the fact that South Africa, one, is a geographic entity. It's a unity as such. It's a one state. And that is like it's been forever, at least since uh, 1910, when the Union of South Africa came about. There was no attempt at any stage of trying to unravel that unity. And the second point, I think, what, that was made during the Constitution negotiation is that it's, it's simply economically not feasible. And when I say economically not feasible, it's because of the fact that those particular two regions, as it were then during the, the stages of the constitutional debate, the two regions would never have acquired sufficient economic reliance on their own sources to make it viable entities to sustain themselves as, as independent or separate countries. I remember at the World Trade Center, the concept of a federal state was discussed, and that was rejected. Exactly. So the, the same argument still stands. I, I mean, the dependency or the in the dependency of the different regions in the country, the provinces, are, are such that you know it's unthinkable to separate because the Western Cape will never be an independent source of revenue for themselves to sustain all their requirements. And you know the best example to prove that point is in the field of education. And the reason I'm choosing that is. Education is the biggest single item on the national budget. The biggest single item on the national budget. It accounts for more than 20%, I think, of the current budget in South Africa as a whole. Now, the way in which that money is being allocated to the provinces allow the provinces to actually conduct their education. But if that money is not coming from the national budget, they would simply not be able to execute any public education. And I use that as the example because it's the big, single biggest item on the national budget. But, but the same would apply in the field of health, of housing, etc., etc. And the basic point, therefore, is that the Western Cape doesn't have sufficient sources of income to sustain themselves. Yeah, so economically, you say that's not possible. What about this Article 235 of the Constitution that these groups are talking about? In other words, they, they talk about self-determination. Well, going back to the time that the Constitution was drafted and, and, and you were present in those debates or observed the debates, 
it went back to the fact that the consensus was that South Africa is, is one state. It's a, it's a republic of all its geographic areas. And then there was this argument by some that they would like to have high levels of autonomy and or self-determination, as it was called. But in order to, to reach a compromise, as far as that debate is concerned, it was then decided that there can be provisions for communities to organize their own interests on a collective basis without, and that's the important point, without affecting the national unity of all regions. But that doesn't allow for secession, does it? Exactly. It doesn't. Not at all. There's no provision for secession in the Constitution. And overall, one can say that there was general consensus at the time that there should not be any provision for the possibility of secession in the Constitution, which is definitely the case. The other thing that I've been looking at is Article 1. It it says the Republic of South Africa is one sovereign democratic state, not a. Do you think that also draws a line in the sand and say, you know, we are going to be one? And if you look at the representation in the National Assembly, it's per region, it's not per province. So the whole way it's set out, that you guys set it out, you know, you negotiated that with Sir Ramaphosa as the chief negotiators at the time. It was never intended for one province to go away and do its own thing. There was no provision, there was no intention, there was no discussion on the possibility of separation for a particular region or secession for that matter. South Africa has always been regarded, and like you quoted now, the Constitution has always been regarded as one unitary entity. Have you found any appetite among political parties? Because this seems to come from groups outside the political sphere. Have you found any appetite from political parties for this? I haven't heard it from any political party myself. Like I said at the beginning, it comes from groups you know, within that province that I picked up the, the noises from. But I don't think they even organized or combined in terms of their effort. It's just cheap talk. They're talking about a referendum. What effect would that have? Well, the, the point is that a referendum is not being provided for within the constitutional framework. But at the same time, there is no body that a body of organized structures that have so far, as far as I know, advocated for a referendum at all. Like I said, there is no political party that has advocated for that. Unlike, for instance, in the case of Scotland, where the majority party is actually advocating for a referendum all the time. Yeah, in Scotland, the SNP, their very existence is about separation from the United Kingdom. That's totally different. Exactly. So even if a referendum is called by um, the Premier of the Western Cape, that wouldn't even be binding, would it? I can't seem to be that silly to call a referendum. <laughs> I think uh, Alan Wendy is a, a very reasonable person, you know, whatever one thinks of his political party, but he himself comes across to me as a very astute leader. And I can't for one moment think that he will argue for for something like secession and or a referendum on that. Like I said, you know, we have to look at the joint interest of the country. I mean, what we've seen during the last 18 months since the start of COVID, as far as the economy of the Western Cape is concerned, the lack of tourism that came about as a result of COVID hugely affected the economic base of the Western Cape. You can just visit there and see for yourself what is happening. And it's, it's very sad because, you know, it's, it's in the past been a huge source of income on the national basis because Western Cape is one of the most attractive destinations for international tourism to South Africa. So the country at large is suffering as a result of that, but so much more the Western Cape itself. And the, the level of unemployment, therefore, has also hugely increased because of the, the high level of uh, of tourism activity in the province. So what you're saying is politically it's, it's impossible, legally it seems impossible, and economically it could not sustain itself. Correct, absolutely.
Joining me today, we have Dr. Nati Mdladla, Dr. Pinky Ngakani, and Professor Colleen Aldous to talk about ivermectin and its use in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. Professor Aldous, two weeks ago, you spoke to Alec Hogg and you said that it's not a miracle drug, but that it should be used as a cocktail in conjunction with other medications. Dr. Mdladla and Ngakani, what are your experiences in this regard? Definitely. It is not trying to prove a point. And I think some of actually the people that look at studies, when they challenge the studies that come out, they they say, uh, well, it was used with this and that. uh, So how do we know if actually the drug worked or not? Hmm. We know that it actually works even on its own uh, with the original virus and maybe with a beta variant. It seemed to work well actually on its own. But we've learned that using it on its own might actually be creating, you know this from animals as well, resistance which is what developed in animals that could have a maintain on its own uh, that has scabies or treated uh, for scabies, is that over time you actually develop resistance. So if you use it with other agents, first of all, you avoid resistance in the long run, which means you have the drug available for you to use over many uh, waves uh, to come. And secondly, it's much more effective uh, in actually treating the patient. And we're appreciating that even more now with the third variant uh, or with the third wave of the Delta variant. Uh, and the combination of drugs is what actually Pierre Corey calls it doctoring. Sure. So we're not trying to prove a point. I want to see a patient go out. I have no allegiance to one drug or another. If there's something else that works better than ivermectin, I will use that. If there's something safer or whatever than ivermectin, I'll use that. Right now, that's the one drug that we have. So we're combining with other things. And like I said, the two most important ones is zinc and doxycycline, just because that helps with viral killing and avoiding resistance. The other agents are supplementary and they do other functions. So I've started using in our ICU, we started using uh, fluoxetine or two, even my outpatients. I'll put them on other fluoxetine and fluoxetine because there's proof in studies that actually complements it well and works well for, uh, for COVID. And then we'll add things like vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, for patients that are anxious or can't sleep at night, because one of the biggest killers for, for COVID is the fear factor has been created over time. And most patients, and you know this if you actually either thought you had COVID yourself or actually got COVID, is that when you get it, you think you have it, the f- amount of fear that you have can is on its own be detrimental. So oftentimes we'll try and actually give these patients something to actually make them sleep at night, either as a specific sedative like melatonin at night, which also has got other benefits uh, as an anti-COVID uh, medication, or we put them on, on antihistamines that can also have a sedating effect plus a complementary effect where they relieve the bronchospasm, which is what actually causes um, um, low uh, oxygen levels and sets. Um, and um, on most of my patients, that actually would be the combination of drugs that I put them on. It's around about seven or eight um, uh, uh, different tablets that do different things, but all in all mm-hmm. sort of contribute to uh, a positive patient outcome. Does your experience and the fact that you support ivermectin, does that in any way affect your view on COVID-19 vaccination? Personally, it it becomes a bit of a challenge when you're talking about the vaccine as well as ivermectin in the same sentence. Because all we want is, like, like we have been saying, we want something that works. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where it comes from, it doesn't matter what it is, but we all we want is something that's going to work for the for the whole entire, you know, spectrum of the disease. So the vaccines, it becomes a political issue when we st- when we stop ivermectin so that we can push the vaccine agenda. That's when it becomes a problem. But otherwise, vaccines generally have been used. All we want is something that's going to be effective against COVID, whether it's a vaccine or not a vaccine. Personally, I would I, I do I do not like the way that the, the whole ivermectin thing has been handled, and it makes me start questioning. The, the legitimacy of the the concept of what is going on behind the scenes. If we're going to oppress a drug and suppress a drug that we know should work, and then we push an agenda of something that we haven't got any confidence in. And all we're asking is for the same leniency with which the, vac- the vaccines are being treated to be given to ivermectin. And uh, from my side, and I'll let Colleen sort of do the last part, is there is no world where the vaccines exist on their own or ivermectin exists on their own. And from the beginning, before vaccines actually came out when we were using uh, ivermectin in the second wave of December, uh, before even the rollout came out, mm-hmm. our prediction was that for the longest of time in South Africa, 
there were going to be people who would not be vaccinated by the time the next wave came, which was the one that we're experiencing now in winter. And the question was, for those people, and so I said in February, March, say for people who will still not be vaccinated because the rollout is going to be slow, which we expected, and for people that might not be able to get the vaccine for various other reasons, and for people who actually get breakthrough infections with the vaccine, which also predicted was going to happen as variants actually came through. The question was, what would be the option for those people? A vaccine prevents disease. It does not treat disease. And there will be breakthroughs, and there will be severe breakthroughs. I've seen severe breakthroughs in my unit. I've treated a number of patients who've been fully vaccinated, who've presented severe COVID, and have treated them with ivermectin. So for me, from back then, it was not a question of whether the vaccine should be used or not used. If the vaccine is obviously safe, it's effective, and it's used in the population of people that actually derive benefit from it, that vaccine should be used. Uh, And if the current vaccines fit that mold, then they should be used. But what do we do with people that can't be on them, people that still get breakthrough infections, and people that just plainly refuse to get them? And that's going to happen. It's happening all over the world. So for me, it was a question of when that time comes, there should always be a treatment available uh, for those people. Uh, because with, with or without vaccines, the treatment option is still available. Uh, and if some people then decide to take a tablet as prophylaxis, because that's the only option that they see viable, uh, mm-hmm. that option should be available. All that we need to do around both vaccines and tablets is give the appropriate education given by doctors to explain to people who either are taking the vaccine as treatment, because often I've had patients who, because they've been vaccinated, believe that it, it actually then will prevent severe disease and hospitalizations. And then they should stay home and not come to hospital until it's very late and they're very sick. A similar situation as people that are probably on ivermectin, who then also stay at home and believe that this is going to work and they're not going to go to hospital. So instead of squabbling about uh, issues on both as if they're actually um, one agent against another, we should look at them as complementary treatments and educate people on when you are sick, this is what you must have at home. Have a pulse oximeter. Have this. Speak to your doctor regularly. Uh, discuss how you're feeling on different days. And when things are not seemingly uh, good and going the right direction, go to hospital on time, and that will save more patients. Okay, I've got to say up front that the two sides are not mutually exclusive, mm. and the world is beginning to see that. And I'm going to read to you Pfizer's tweet from the 28th of July. Along with vaccines, success against COVID will likely require antiviral treatments for those who contract the virus. So they've already got a phase three, two, three trial going of an antiviral. Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, last week said, we need a seven to 10 day early treatment for infection of COVID before we get to the inflammatory response. And MSD, or Merck, Sharp, and Dome, have got molnupiravir in their phase three trials. So it's been acknowledged that the two go together. And it's just a low blow from anti-ivermectin lobby to say that people who are advocates of the use of ivermectin to cure people are Mm. anti-vaxxers. We are Mm. most certainly not. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Oil prices are sliding on fears about the spreading Delta coronavirus variant. But first, the U.S. Senate is set to approve a $1 trillion infrastructure package today. We'll find out how divided lawmakers got to this point. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The U.S. Congress is about to put another trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus into the economy. Today, the Senate is expected to pass President Joe Biden's infrastructure package. It'll steer billions of dollars towards big projects like roads and bridges, freight rail and public transportation. After months of debate, the bill is getting off the ground because a surprising number of Republicans crossed the aisle. I spoke to the FT's Lauren Fedor about why so many Republicans joined their Democratic colleagues. There are a couple of reasons for that. The first, I think, is public opinion. These policies, these investments are very, very popular with the American people. 
people see crumbling roads and bridges, uh, airports, trains in their communities, and they want to see them fixed. They want to see them improved. So I would say that that's the number one thing. Um, but we've also seen that this is not just a bipartisan vote, but a bipartisan effort. So Republicans have been involved through many stages of this process. Now, originally, the White House came out with a wish list that was many times the size of this package. But the winning formula proved to be this small group, which had five Democrats, five Republicans. They came together. They came up with a deal. And then those five Republicans brought along several of their colleagues. I guess it's still surprising, Lauren, because Republicans for so long when discussing this bill pointed toward inflation as a reason why they needed to be cautious. Um, and, And really one of their biggest talking points against the Biden administration, does support for this bill cut against that argument? Mm. So, you know, it's definitely still an issue. And I think it's part of the mood music in Washington at the moment. We're going to have the CPI figures on Wednesday, where I no doubt will be hearing more about inflation, particularly from the Republican side of the aisle. But, you know, for some of these lawmakers, they saw this as important investments that were going to reap dividends, not only in the short term, but the medium and long term. These are investments in communities. Um, it's important to remember that this is just one package. So it's a big package, but there's an even bigger package coming down the road. And that's a $3.5 trillion budget proposal um, that the White House and congressional Democrats are, are now going to start pushing. In fact, they're going to start pushing it probably within hours of the infrastructure bill being passed. That package is going to be done by Democrats alone. They're going to go it alone and they're not looking for Republican support. And you can it's definitely fair to expect that that once that process gets underway, we're going to be hearing all of these Republicans talking about the importance of fiscal discipline, tightening spending and and trying to rein in those inflation numbers. Lauren Fedor is the FT's Washington correspondent. Oil prices slid again on Monday. Brent crude and West Texas Intermediate both dropped more than 2%. One reason is the rally in the dollar. A stronger dollar makes oil more expensive for non-dollar holders. Adding to that, the FT's Neil Hume says there's the spreading of the Delta variant of the coronavirus, especially in China, where authorities imposed new travel restrictions after the country's worst outbreak since the start of the pandemic. And that's had people really worried about um, oil demand in China, which is the world's biggest importer of crude oil. At the same time, we're also seeing some concerns among analysts about just slowing economic growth in China. And indeed, over the weekend, we had the latest uh, import data out. And that showed that uh, Chinese uh, oil imports were below 10 million barrels a day for a fourth consecutive month in July. So things really have slowed down in terms of oil demand in China since this time a year ago. So really, how big a deal is this recent dip? Yeah, I think it's important not to get too carried away with, you know, the fall that we've had. You know, OK, it's, you know, the oil price is down 10 percent in sort of three sessions or so. But, you know, it's only just below $70 a barrel. If, if we think where it was April last year, you know, the US price went negative. So, I mean, it still is up by quite a bit. And if you look at what some of the analysts are saying, I mean, they're pretty confident that economic growth is you know going to continue. And this sort of, you know, the reopening after the pandemic is going to be with us. So, um, yeah, we probably shouldn't get too um, bearish about the oil price at the moment. I mean, it's had a terrific run and it has pulled back a bit, but probably that's only to be expected. That's the FT's natural resources editor, Neil Hume. In another sign of the times, European soccer club Inter Milan has ditched its longtime sponsor, Pirelli. The Italian tire maker's logo has graced Inter Milan jerseys for 26 years. Now, players will brandish the logo of a cryptocurrency exchange called Socios.com. The company allows clubs and leagues to sell tradable digital tokens to fans, and it's the latest crypto company to bet on sports sponsorships as a way to become more mainstream. Another company, Crypto.com, is sponsoring Formula One motor racing. And in the U.S., the Portland Trailblazers basketball team has a five-year jersey sponsorship with StormX. That's a company that works with retailers to reward shoppers with crypto tokens. The chief executive of StormX said there was a very strong correlation between National Basketball Association viewers and his target audience of 18 to 45-year-old predominantly male customers. And what better way to get your brand out there than to get it on a sports jersey? 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, thanks for being with us today. We'll be back in your company again tomorrow. That's Wednesday from the BizNews team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at BizNews.